SEN Test Cricket for Host Plus and Henley Homes build with confidence. Play has formally been delayed, so we won't see the first ball at 10 o'clock. The gates are open. There are a smattering of fans who have made their way in. No one's terribly fussed by the rain that is falling. It is light drizzle, but light drizzle means we can't get underway and the ground staff have the full covers laid down. Our pre-match is for Spitwater, Tools Not Toys, working hard since 1982. Day three of each test match in our in our pre-game, we have the Chief Executive of the Australian Cricketers Association, Todd Greenberg, with us. Todd, great to see you in the box. Good morning. Hopefully I can help you pass a bit of time as the uh, <laughs> covers sit, uh, sadly, in the middle of the MCG. Just with the festive season, out of curiosity, where are we with the BBL? Which So no game Christmas Eve. Mm. Um, are there still any active conversations around a, a Christmas night game? Um, I wouldn't call them active, but... Uh, I genuinely get a sense it's a conversation we've got to keep having. Um, we've never closed the door on it. Um, I think I've said this to you before. We know what business we're in. We're in the entertainment business. So um, if there's merit to a conversation that says we can get big crowds and big ratings and good returns for both the game and the players, then we're up for it. Um, but, you know, it, it's not just about the players on this one. And, I mean, people like yourselves have to work Christmas Day as well, uh, ground staff and venues, and there's a, there's a big ecosystem of cricket. So the, the two NBL games have gone really well, mm. super attendances, mm. and then just watching what happened in the States. So culturally, they're, they're a bit further advanced on that. Yeah. Three NFL games, five NBA games. Mm. One of the NFL games broke all viewing mm. records. Yeah, yeah. So it feels like there's an untapped yeah. possibility and i've always been of the view the perfect product is a bbl game yeah and it night. it makes sense that the numbers are strong because let's face it everyone's sitting at home and at that time of the day you probably turn the tv on to watch something so i mean we've always thought you know our previous position on this has been if you could play a derby in the same city it would then reduce the travel because when you think about it it's not just the day of it's that preparation for performance um, and so if you can limit travel maybe play a derby game and hopefully that doesn't take away from what the derby game would be. Maybe it's accretive. So I think it's a conversation worth having. And, you know, the world evolves. Um, if you'd said this maybe 15, 20 years ago, it would have been sacrilege to play on these dates. But I think you're right. Other models and other sports are making it work. So why wouldn't we open our eyes to it? Do you know what the... So each individual will have a different view. Uh, absolutely. Do you know what the critical mass of your players feels? No, I, it's not something we've surveyed on. But, I, you know, I heard, I heard Jordan Silk talking a couple of days ago saying he'd be open to it. Um, and most of my conversations with players, and you're right, it's, it's not a universal approach, but most of my conversations with players is they want to know the reasons why. And if you can take them through the, the logical reasons of why and almost establish in their eyes a business case for this is good and it's good for players and it's good for the game, they'll listen intently and, and most of them will lean in. So there'll, there'll be people who won't want to play on Christmas Day, like there'll be people who work in your industry who won't want to work on Christmas Day. But I get a sense that people are open to the conversation and if you can explain to them the benefits and articulate those benefits and, you know, with players it's, it's why, if you do do those things, then the conversation gets easier. Do you think there will be a, a Christmas Day in the not-too-distant future where we have a go at it? Um, well, I mean, we're in the middle of a broadcast deal now, so I'd be interested to talk to uh, both broadcasters and Cricket Australia on the benefits of it. But I do think that anything you do in the middle of a deal creates value for the next deal. So you're always trying to make sure you're creating more value for the next conversation. So players are part of that. You know, I've said this to you on a number of occasions we're in a revenue share arrangement, which means we lean in heavily for opportunities, um, as we should. 
So th this is exactly one of them. But you'd have to be able to demonstrate that you get those really good outcomes that you've just talked about. And I suppose you never know till you try, yeah. right? Yep. Usman Kawasha was in the headlines again before uh, the I'm Boxing surprised Day you asked me that question. question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was always going to come up. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, the term he used before this test was hypocrisy, that he feels that yeah. there have been sort of rules for some at different junctures, and he cited Manus Labashain and the eagle that he has on his back with the Bible verse and his own situation. I mean, do you share that view with Usman Kawasha that there has been a degree of hypocrisy shown here? Yeah, I mean, you, if you sit in his shoes, you can completely understand why he's frustrated that there would appear to be rules for some and others for others. Um, and, and that's how Uzi feels, genuinely. He's upset about it. Um, and if you sit with Usman one-on-one, -on -one, he, he is upset about this, personally upset. Um, and I use the word upset because, you know, you know this has affected him deeply um, and personally, and he's tried to use his platform for good. And we've tried to help him find a way to use that platform for good. Uh, and it's been denied. Um, so I was surprised that he was denied, um, given what I thought was a common sense approach. Um, and we've tried to take out as much emotion in that approach as possible and create a message of goodwill. Um, but like anything on the field, you have to accept the umpire's decision. Uh, and that's what Uzi has done. And I, I admire him a lot because, you know, he's preparing for a test match. He's creating some controversy. Um, and... He's tried his very best to portray that message, um, but he's accepted that decision and he now gets on and plays the test match. In terms of the ICC piece to this, yeah. I mean, we sort of think of it as this nebulous idea sometimes, don't we? You know, technocrats sitting in Dubai, but is there any feedback? I mean, at the end of the day, it is a federation, right? It's a, it's a body of its members. Has there been yep. feedback as to how they've arrived at this decision from, from the executive or from the board? Well, I think, I think that's a little bit of a frustration for the players in that they haven't heard that. Right. Uh, I certainly haven't. Um, I'm not sure if anyone from the ICC has been on your program to talk about it openly, but um, I've only read what you've read in the newspapers, mm -hmm. uh, and that's all that Uzi's received as well. So there is that level of frustration, I think, about the transparency um, and also the, the, the other examples that we've all cited and seen that are different. Um, and that's hard for people to understand. It's hard for me to understand. The nature of a protest is to go against authority. Have you, have you counselled him at all about not going ahead in direct breach of, um, of an instructive not to yeah. have the doves stick out? Yeah, we have had those conversations. I mean, you know, there were conversations before the test match that, you know, were, oh, I'll do it anyway. Um, and I'm not suggesting that Uzi would have done it anyway, but there was those conversations. And I think where Uzi has put himself in a really good measured leadership role is that he's created what he wanted to do he's been told he can't by the rules and he's accepted that and that's a level of maturity um uh and we've had those conversations as i said I, i'm i'm very proud of the way he's handled himself uh on what's a a very emotive issue for lots of people yeah. for a variety of different reasons um you know Uzi's a very very bright guy um he wants to use his profile and platform for good like, like a lot of our players do um, and sometimes that creates some controversy because not everyone agrees. Um, but that's, that's the pure nature of standing up for what you believe in sometimes. Do you keep any tabs on um, any prevailing public sentiment toward him and what he's trying to do? Yeah. As he wouldn't, but do you yeah. on his behalf? Yeah, and I think that's part of our role is to guide and inform him and others, um, whether it's the public sentiment on Dave Warner and 
those public comments with Mitch Johnson a couple of weeks ago, or it's on these sorts of issues with Uzi, or it's, you know, on what the, the view is on Pat on climate change. I think a part of my, my realistic briefings to players is to explain to them the broader nature of some of the things that they do. You know, players live in a bubble. They live in almost a vortex and they surround themselves with a lot of people who tell them what they want to hear. And my job is to give them a much broader perspective. Was CA right to cancel Mitch Johnson's formal appearances <laughs> during the Perth test, given how volatile that was? It was one of those, I, I think, lose-lose. Yeah. You know, um, if, they, if they continue with it, they're going to cop some criticism. If they don't, they'll also cop criticism. So I think it was the lesser of two evils by the sound of things. Uh, during the week, we've seen Tom Curran in strife um, mm. for uh, running up to the, to the crease with the umpire in his way, and he copped a fairly big whack, four-game ban. He challenged it. The Sixers challenged it as well. I mean, what was your perspective on that, acknowledging that, that umpires come under your broader remit as well? Yeah, I mean, um, when I first saw it, I, I didn't like what I saw, um, and I think most cricket people would say that. Um, I'm really pleased that he's accepted... Um, the outcome and also acknowledge his role in it. So there was some contrition showed by mm-hmm. the player. I think that's important. Um, you know, I understand the concept of the appeal because you always want to challenge, you always want to use the rules and regulations to the best of your advantage. But um, I think on reflection, he'll, he'll want that period of time over again. Um, and it, it's another demonstration that our players are human beings. Um, they're going to make mistakes from time to time like all of us, guaranteed, as good as you both are, you'll make a mistake today. Um, and it's just the level sometimes of those mistakes are big and when you're in the public eye, they're bigger. Um, and he made a mistake and he now pays a very significant price for that mistake. What's, what's the process like, do you think? So in the NRL and the AFL, there are open tribunal hearings, so we all hear the evidence yeah. uh, and it either justifies or not the penalty. In cricket, it is all done behind closed yeah, yeah. doors. Is, do yeah. you have a view whether that's the, the appropriate way? Well, uh, when, in my, when I was in rugby league, I was always a firm transparency into those processes as possible because the more that they're behind closed doors, the more people are looking for something sinister in the process when quite often there's not. Um, and so in, in rugby league, we used to open them up and they are some of the most boring nights in history having yep. to sit through a judiciary process. <laughs> um, so I get a sense transparency is your friend, not your foe. Um, and, and ultimately, uh, there are rules and regulations which people abide by. So... Uh, you know, the behind-closed-doors thing, for me, creates some level of privacy, but ultimately I think there's, um, there's a level of transparency which stops a lot of the questions being asked. Yeah. The IPL mini-auction that was held, so the, the two headlines were obviously Stark and Cummins. Mm. I felt like the most interesting case study maybe we've ever had in Australian cricket is Spencer Johnson. Yeah. So Red Bull contract with the Saka mm. uh, Heat mm. BBL contract. Mm. This is far beyond anything he's... Yeah ever dreamt of earning in yeah. Australia, what, sort of as the microcosm of what this might be. How significant yeah. a moment is $1.78 million for Spencer yeah. Johnson? Oh, it's enormous. Um, you know, the numbers are enormous, but then, as you've just articulated nicely, it, the numbers are enormous in comparison to what you can earn domestically. Um, and whilst we're really pleased for players to do that, it puts huge pressure on the domestic system. It puts huge pressure on boards both here and abroad to continue the traditional bilateral concept of cricket uh, where players will commit to it. Now, we're in an era now where all of our best players want to play red ball cricket. They want to wear a baggy green, male and female, by the way. Um, and um, we can't take that for granted, though, because the next generation of player 
probably won't think like that. Um, and I think that's a real challenge. Um, and that challenge is, is upon us right now, in, in my view. Um, and we've got to make sure we understand those challenges and compete because it's getting away from us. So what do you think... Just give me round fears, right? What would a stock standard contract with the Saka be for a, for a summer, do you reckon? Um, if you're playing both formats, if you're playing a BBL format over the course of summer and you're playing in a um, domestic system and you're playing some shield cricket, yeah, you're probably talking 300000 Yeah. So this is almost... This is where my mind goes... If you're anywhere near Spencer Johnson or him himself, it's almost your professional obligation now to go, okay, yeah. so my principal earn is this eight weeks, and mm. if I make that work, then beyond that, there are five or six other yeah. contractual possibilities. Yep. I'm not sure why I would sign a contract yep. to play any Red Bull cricket ever again, and I can still represent Australia, yeah. because the more I play in the IPL and light contracts the further up the list I go to represent Australia yep. in white ball cricket. And you've just demonstrated the challenge that I was just trying to articulate, which is, which is exactly that, is, um, you know, he, he'll still want to play for his country, as we all would want him to, but there will be a push and pull element, which is hard to get away from. And who in their right mind in any vocation, whether it's sport or industry, wouldn't take that option either. Um, you can't begrudge the players for finding the best commercial outcome because... One, they've got a limited lifespan, and two, quite often, they don't choose their own demise at the end of their career. It's chosen for them. So you've really got to cash in while you can. And there are opportunities for these players to genuinely cash in, as we've seen. And I think those opportunities are growing. As you've just said, if you shine in that league, you will find other leagues of which to ply your trade. Uh, now, these are all good things for players, but it puts pressure back on the systems that we've generated over a long period of time revenue share systems and domestic cricket and pathways, which we have to almost reinvent or reinvigorate. Yeah. I mean, you'd love to know what cricket looked like in 20 years so that you can make the decision. It's not how it works, is it? Yeah. Somewhere in a drawer, do you have a a document that forecasts, well, this is probably where these trends will take us and these are going to be the flex points and the real tension moments along the way? Yeah, we're, we're certainly looking well in advance of where we are now and trying to predict what that looks like. The hard thing to do is if we go back 10 years, we would never have predicted where we're sitting right now. So I'd love to tell you I've got that crystal ball. But what I can say with some certainty is that the T20 leagues uh, around the world are growing. Uh, They're growing commercially. uh, And they've got much more private investment in them than they've ever had, which means that uh, earning opportunities for players will increase, which will put more pressure on the system domestically here and will put more pressure on bilateral cricket here. And when I say here, I don't just mean in Australia. I mean every competing nation in world cricket. And we're already seeing the West Indies, New Zealand, South Africa being challenged by this. Um, you know, and, and I saw recently South African cricket were telling their players not to tour in a test match series mm. in New Zealand, but to stay and play T20 cricket. Now, if I'd said that to both of you 10 years ago, you would have laughed me out of the room. Mm. But that's happening today. So I, I don't think that um, we can turn our attention away from that and think it won't happen here because it will in my view it's a matter of when feels a bit dystopian doesn't it when you kind of say it like that but it is the direction of travel and the other commonality with a lot of these leagues that are popping up is they're owned by broadly speaking the same group of people uh, out of the IPL and and so on Um, there was chat uh, through the middle of this year about the prospect of 12-month deals with Mm -hmm. 
IPL clubs that will extend yeah. to other competitions around the world and where there will be a reverse of what we currently have where it won't be an NOC being sought to play yeah. a domestic league. It'll be, yeah. well, can we have permission to have yeah. our superstar player back to turn out in a, in a test yeah. match? Do you think it'll get that bad? Well, I'll share this with you. Um, when, I was, when I saw you recently at the Ashes in the UK, I spent some time with a gentleman who's my counterpart in the EPL. His name's Maheta Malongo. He doesn't know anything about cricket, uh, but he's responsible for the players who play in the EPL. Now, his first question to me was, um, how long are you here for? How long are your players here for? And when I explained to him the length of time we were at the Ashes, the next question was, he said, well, geez, their clubs will be unhappy about that, being released to their countries for that long. And when I tried to explain to him that they're actually here being centrally contracted from their countries, he basically said to me, well, that's not going to last much longer. Now, that's from someone who's completely outside the sport, who lives in a very different world. And it's hard. these are hard things to talk about, particularly for people who've been entrenched in cricket all their life and have seen it in one way. But my view is we've got to embrace change and we've got to be prepared to talk about it because it's coming. Um, so it, it might not be the, the, the terrible demise of the game that some people think. It might actually be a growth opportunity for the game if, if we get it right. Um, I, want, I still want our players playing for their country, but it just might be in a different way. One man who's not going to be playing test cricket for much longer is David Warner. Mm. Um, there's been a lot of speculation through the year about how he might um, move into T20 franchise comps in a more wholehearted way. Of course, he's played in the IPL for years, but um, the ILT20 is coming up, and I know he's got a, a deal with the Capitals through the IPL. He's got a deal with the ILT20 as a marketing czar or something like that on a press release a, a couple of weeks ago. Looking at the dates, it'll clash with the end of the Big Bash, and it will clash with some Australian white ball cricket against the West Indies. Is, is it your expectation that Warner will, will seek an NOC for that tournament? And if so, might it be that it is at the expense of some BBL or indeed some Australian white ball internationals? I think the short answer to that is probably yes. Um, uh, I know he's pretty committed to the, the BBL, and we've had this conversation, Dave and I, about the importance of, and you heard me say this on this exact program last year, about the importance of our best players playing in the BBL. And there's a reason for that, because if we've got our best players playing here, we're a big chance to create the biggest revenues, and the biggest revenues for domestic players means everyone shares in those revenues. Uh, and that's sort of incumbent on our best players to try to play and I've had that conversation with Dave and others, but there's no doubt in the next phase of Dave's life, he's going to be looking to ply his trade where he gets the best return on his investment. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I'm encouraging him to do that. Um, and there will be times where he'll be looking to miss certain games or tours, and that's the sort of flexibility I think we've got to get our heads around. Um, some people won't like that, but that's the modern world of which we're living in, and I think we have to embrace it. Last one is... Nick Hockley was here yesterday and he gave the, um, the greatest hope we've heard around a women's test series for the, the mm. premium product, okay. Australia, England, Australia, India. Is, is that reflective of what you would know behind the scenes or is that an advancement of the, the hope that Elisa Healy expressed in the aftermath of the Indian one-off test? Well, I'm pleased that he said that because, um, you know, we've been banging on for a long time, the players, about ensuring our, our female cricketers have the same opportunities to play red ball cricket. Um, there's a step behind that which is equally important, which is the pathways for our girls to play red ball cricket on the way through to test match cricket. Because let's face it, sadly, there's some girls who are getting into red ball cricket playing a test match that have never played with a red ball before. So we've got to make sure we build the system below that as well. But uh, I agree, we've been advocating for a long time um, about uh, red ball cricket for our female athletes, particularly against India and England. Uh, it was a great test match. 
It was a great test match. I want Australia to win every test match, but um, it, was, it, was, it was good to see it so competitive. Um, and that would have really stung our girls to lose. I'm sure they wanted to play another test match straight away. And they didn't get that. That was the point. It was crying out for the oh, next test match and the absolutely. one after that. Because as yeah, we've yeah. seen with the men, is going into India, mm. you just need a little bit of time to settle and, and see how you go the next yeah. time around. And, and our girls will be so much better for the experience in those conditions. So I'm pleased that he said that. Um, you know, and the challenge for, for us and the game and the players is to commercialise those, those events and make sure that they can contribute to the, to the broader system. So... Yeah, we've we've been advocates for a long time, um, and I'm pleased that the governing body is equally supportive. Todd, good to see you. Uh, we'll chat again in Sydney. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Todd Greenberg is the chief executive of the ACA. Our skies are much brighter again at the MCG. Whether this is just the wave that we'll go through, I reckon they'll have a go at lifting the next set of covers in the coming minutes. The uh, umpires are out chatting with the uh, ground staff at the moment, and we'll uh, we'll tap into a little bit of Fox Cricket next and bring you the latest from ground level. Our pre-match is for Spitwater Tools, not toys working hard since 1982. When play does resume, Pakistan 6 for 194. SEN Test Cricket for Hijaz Halal Financial Solutions.